Hello, friends. I'm Michael Bauman, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Ringer MLB Show World Series Special. On today's program, I'm joined by Zach Cram and Ben Mr. Chalk Lindbergh to break down Game 1 of the World Series and preview the and preview the games to come. We also delve into Zach's takes on home run robberies and discuss some potential rule changes for coming seasons. All that and more is just around the corner. Pleased to be joined now by two men who, unlike me, did not correctly predict the two teams that would be in the World Series this year. Uh, joining me first is Ben Lindbergh, Ringer staff writer. Hello, Ben. Hello. And peeking out between Ben and me like Mookie Betts between his larger teammates is Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Zach, how you doing? Free tacos for everybody. This is the... I think the storyline from game one is that Mookie Betts became the first player to give America free tacos twice. This is a man who provides for his nation. And I think the heroic status that he's developing uh, during this world series is, uh, is well-deserved. He, I guess is providing for everyone except Red Sox nation. If we're going to have the first of a dozen Red Sox jokes on this. Pod. So here's the, I, I don't know who is actually making the more Red Sox or the more like comp, comments about the trade whether it's red aggrieved red sox fans or red sox haters who are enjoying tweaking the red sox i will say there's something to like there's a certain strain of fan that would rather complain about things going badly than enjoy things going well and uh if you're that kind of fan and you're in boston and you're used to winning all the time this might be a welcome change of pace if you're someone who enjoys watching Mookie Betts, then you should probably be glad that he was traded because even Mookie Betts would not have made the Red Sox a playoff team this year. And now we get to enjoy him and we get to get free tacos from him because he was traded. So that uh, doesn't really make the trade make sense. I, I think we all talked and wrote about that trade plenty at the time and were pretty critical of it. You can see why they did it. Everyone knew what the rationale was, and we all make jokes about financial flexibility. And, you know, the prospects they get back maybe will help them. I mean, Alex Verdugo had a good year for them, but I think it keeps coming up now because it's just so incredibly clear that Mookie Betts is not just your garden variety good or even great player. He is uh, an inner circle all-time superstar type, and he is showing that on a daily basis both offensively and defensively. And so I think everyone's looking at it now and seeing that the Dodgers have him locked up for an eternity and saying, you could have had him Red Sox. You did have him and you didn't keep him. And there's something special about not just how good Betts is, but the way he's good. There's something special about a legitimate five-tool talent who in a, a month and in a sport that sometimes becomes bogged down in just strikeouts and walks contributes by base running, by fielding, and then by hitting a home run of his own as he did in game one last night. But I think game one was the perfect showcase for all of his talents because he stole multiple bases in an inning. He raced home on what turned out to be a really good play by Yandy Diaz to kind of spear a Max Muncie scorcher and throw home and Almost any other batter, almost any other runner, I should say, would have been out. But Betts broke home early, and he was fast enough and slid around the tag and was safe. And I think that kinetic energy that he brings is so exciting and refreshing uh, this month for the sport. Yeah, I think that's something... 
as much as I complain about the strikeouts and three, three true outcomes as an entertainment product or the drag between pitches, this is something that uh, I really like about this generation of, of baseball superstars in particular is they tend to be these great athletes, these great all around players, these like really smart, creative players as, as well. Like the every aspect of not just bets, but Mike Trout, Fernando Tatis, um, Jose Altuve, like Acuna, Acuna. Um, yeah, it, it seems like there's a difference between this generation of superstars and the generation of superstars from the height of the steroid era where, you know, I was a teenager and in college watching, you know, Barry Bonds was once that five tool player, but really wasn't by the time the mid two thousands rolled around, like, you know, a rod stopped running. There were, it was a lot of just on base and power and that's about it. And now we see, like it, some of the the very best, most exciting players, and Betts is certainly among them. Like there's almost uh, the the quality you get from watching a really good soccer player, where they're you know just sort of exploring space and and contributing in all in all facets of the game. And yeah, I mean the the most impressive thing it's obviously his his uh, catches on the the outfield warning track in in the NLCS were incredible he had had a pretty quiet uh postseason offensively up until that that point he you know he'd been getting on base but the the home run was was his first and you really saw like the difference between very good base running or a fast guy on the bases and a fast guy who's also incredibly intelligent and reads the game really well and that I mean that play at the plate that you mentioned Zach um was a great example of, of how many guys get from third to home there. Uh, it's and, and get around the tag and, and close that distance that quickly. I mean, he's, he's a special player and this is an incredible showcase for him. Yeah. Mike, to your point about bets, not just as a fast runner, but a great base runner tactically is since 2015 bets has been worth 44 runs, according to fan base running metric, which is second in the majors, to only Billy Hamilton. So he's not just a great hitter and he's not just a great fielder. He's also the best runner in the majors besides the guy who probably only has a job because he's such a good base runner. And I think that underscores uh, the, the diversity of what he brings. So I don't think we actually mentioned the final score. Uh, this was after a pretty incredible ALCS in both leagues. Not a snoozer. I think this was a, a compelling game. There were about innings seven or so, uh, but final uh, Dodgers eight, Rays three. Uh, the contrast, not just in style, but in outcome between the two starting pitchers probably defined this game. Tyler Glass now flashed the stuff, struggled to command it. You know, 112 pitches uh, in his adding six walks um, versus Clayton Kershaw, who struggled a little bit in the first inning. Uh, there was a lot of talk about him like not really finding his slider until the second inning. But six innings pitched, two hits, one walk, one uh, earned run, eight strikeouts. After the first inning, only allowed one base runner. And that was the Kevin Kiermaier solo home run. Uh, so Kershaw, good, right? This is we, you know, how many times have we seen him deliver this performance in the in the postseason? Yeah, actually, a lot of times or more times than people would think, right? Because uh, the narrative is, of course, oh, Kershaw was good. We're all relieved. I think we were all waiting for him to blow it in the sixth or the seventh inning. And this time, at least Dave Roberts didn't give him the chance. And he was great while he was in the game. But this was, by game score, only his eighth 
best postseason start. You could say, well, it was the World Series, so that counts more, but it wasn't even his best career postseason World Series start, right? He was even better in game one of the 2017 World Series, and it wasn't his best postseason start of this year either because he was so great in the wildcard series against the Brewers. So even though his career track record in the postseason cannot compare to his regular season track record, and yes, I know Dave Roberts and the bullpen and all the rest, he hasn't gotten the support. He hasn't been put in the best positions to succeed. But even so, he has had so many postseason starts and so many postseason outings that he's accumulated quite a few great ones, which are kind of dwarfed by the shaky ones that everyone remembers and that have become so associated with him. But If you look at the individual games, he has had a lot of gems in there, which is why, even though I will acknowledge that he has been significantly worse in the postseason overall, I don't really like the unclutch suggestion because he has been so clutch and so dominant so many times. And this was a great example of that. I think what stood out to me last night wasn't just that Kershaw was good. It was kind of the combination of This is, if you're the Dodgers, what you want out of a win. You had the lineup that was the highest scoring in the regular season, and they really wore down Glasnow, who's a talented pitcher, but walked six batters. And Kershaw, who is, I think, still their ace. A lot of people expected Walker Buehler to take over that mantle, and he has been starting game one's this postseason. He couldn't because he threw in game six of the NLCS. But I think Kershaw has been their most consistent pitcher this year. But most importantly, they didn't have to go to a bullpen battle. And I think the Dodgers have a clear lineup advantage. I'd probably say the rotations are somewhat even in this series with maybe a slight tilt toward Tampa. But the bullpen is where Tampa has the advantage. The Dodgers' offensive explosion in the middle innings last night made it so that it wasn't a battle of the bullpens. They could rest Jansen, they could rest Gratterall, and they didn't need to try to hit the Rays' flamethrowing relievers. And I think that's What's so encouraging about this win? It doesn't mean they're going to win the series for sure. Both of these teams have lost game ones in this postseason thus far in advance anyway, but it just puts them off to a good start when they can win in relatively easy fashion because against this Tampa pitching staff, you're not going to get many of those. Yeah, and I think that matchup between Rays pitching and Dodgers hitting is really intriguing to me because the Dodgers are so patient. They take so many pitches. We saw it in NLCS Game 7 when they just wore out that Atlanta pitching staff. I mean, the Dodgers took 175 pitches in that game. Braves batters took 131 And that was without a bottom of the ninth. So the Braves batted one more time than the Dodgers did. And still, the Dodgers saw so many pitches. That, I think, is going to be more difficult to do in general in the series because the Rays don't walk a lot of batters and they do throw pitches in the strike zone. And so it'll be a little less easy, I think, on the whole for the Dodgers to do what they did against Atlanta. But on the other hand, the Rays also get the highest chase rate of any pitching staff in the regular season this year. And the Dodgers are on the other end of the spectrum on offense where they chase less than anyone or or maybe we're just a hair behind the Yankees in the lowest chase rate this year. So they're not really going to help you out. And I think Glasnow is probably one of the more exploitable raised pitchers in that department. 
he is someone who is going to walk guys and is going to get you to chase outside the strike zone. And the Dodgers are just too disciplined to do that. So I think that is sort of the clear separator in this series where, as Zach is saying, they both have great pitching staffs and deep pitching staffs. I don't know if there's really a big advantage for either team there. But offense, I think that's where it is. And, you know, I think also because the Dodgers have so many great lefty batters, they match up a little bit better with those hard-throwing Rays right-handed relievers that were so great through the first three rounds of the playoffs. Yeah, what I want to come back to the bullpen, specifically the bullpen deployment in game one in a second. I'll say what this illustrates is that when the Dodgers are, when everything is working for the Dodgers, I don't know that any team in, in baseball can beat them in a seven-game series. We saw, you know, and this is this race team, I think, is pretty clearly the second-best team in baseball this year. This is one of the very few instances where I think the two best teams are actually facing off in the, in the World Series. But we saw this against the Braves, where the Dodgers, if they're playing at anything less than their best, they're beatable. But when they turn it on, when everything's clicking, when everybody's hitting well, when they get decent starting pitching... You know, there's just, I don't know that there's a road to beat them four times out of seven. Now, the trick is, do they get that from the the rest of the rotation? We're going to see Tony Gonsolin tonight, who's been a little bit shaky. Uh, You know, what happens if they have to go to that bullpen a little bit earlier? You know, what happens if, if Corey Seager start, you know, is, is, uh, is swinging over pitches instead of walking three times, you know, there's, but, but every path to the Dodgers losing this series even before the game one win, involved them somehow dropping the ball, I think. And when they put everything together, this is as good a team as I think we've ever seen. Ben, I I liked your point about the Dodgers left-handed hitters because you're right, all the Rays' top relievers are righties. And I think one of the key moments to me last night was Cody Bellinger's home run. Uh, He opened the scoring with the home run off Glass now in the fourth inning. He obviously hit the game-winning home run in NLCS Game 7, and I think the biggest difference between these two teams is the quality of their lineups. The Rays advanced in the earlier rounds, but they were actually out-OPSed by both the Yankees and the Astros, so they won, but they were also out-hit, and I think something like a quarter of their runs this postseason have come from Randy Arozarena, which is partially because Randy Arozarena doesn't make outs anymore, but also the back half of their lineup specifically is not as good as the Dodgers, where Cody Bellinger won the MVP last year and is hitting sixth in their lineup. He did not have a great season this year. There was actually a uh, a ringer editor who doesn't follow baseball all that closely uh, reached out to me during game seven of the NLCS, which was such a great game that everyone was watching it. And he said, so why is Cody Bellinger hitting sixth when he won the MVP last year? And I said, yeah, this this is a sport where sometimes the MVP just has a, a bad year the next year. But Cody Bellinger is what this would be the best or second best hitter in the Rays lineup. And he's hitting sixth through the Dodgers. And I think, Mike, to your point, if the all the Dodgers start hitting, I don't totally know what Tampa can do to to repress them. Yeah, and it's not as if those raised righties are incapable of getting lefties out. They're just generally good and can get anyone out. But I think they're a little less scary against this lineup. And you also saw that the Rays added lefty reliever Ryan Sheriff to the World Series roster, little known reliever to add to their stable. 
he in his career, which is not a big sample size, but in the majors, he has allowed a 289 career OPS to lefties and a 940 career OPS to righties. So he is uh, really a, a true loogie, and we may be seeing him against some of those big Dodgers lefty bats at some point in the series. Yeah, it comes from a sporting family. He Ryan Sheriff is the older brother of Winnipeg Jets center Andrew Cop. No, <laughs> that's a thinker, Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so what the, the another thing I want to say about this Dodgers lineup, particularly for a team for a pitching staff that relies so much on on chase rate and gets as many strikeouts as the the Rays do, is that this is a team with a ton of guys who hit for power without striking out that much. Who who and Betts and Bellinger obviously are the the two biggest examples of this, but Will Smith, Justin Turner, Corey Seager, all those guys can make a lot of contact while still hitting the ball hard. And if you're a a team that relies on power pitching the the way the Rays do, yeah, it's that's something that's that's not exploitable the way that you know you might think of a I don't know maybe the White Sox, the team with a lot of power that that uh, sometimes a lot of those big power hitters have have trouble making contact. So that's something to to watch as well. Uh but what I wanted to bring up about you know Zach mentioned the uh the raised power relievers. We didn't see those guys in game 1. And I think there was a lot of discourse about why Glass now threw 112 pitches, why when he didn't really have it, you know, he only got through four and a third innings, gave up six runs. Yeah, I think this is Kevin Cash doing and I almost said Kevin Clash again. I'm. I said this last night. It's gonna. I'm gonna do the Elmo voice on this podcast before this is over. Um, one of the reasons that that I think Kevin Cash might have left him in so long is triage. That they were already so far behind in this game that maybe it's not worth burning that Fairbanks Anderson um, Castillo group of of relievers to chase a game. And I think that the Cash did a lot. You know, you can't it's it's really tough to 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 concede any game. And I don't think he, he I wouldn't go so far as to say he did that, but he allowed Glass now to, to suck up as much of the uh, the workload as he could. He went to Ryan Yarborough, who is not one of those back end relievers, might start game four, uh, but he only threw 19 pitches. And then Josh Fleming ate up most of the rest of the game. And Josh Fleming is not a guy who's going to pitch a lot if the Rays are going to win this series. So he's keeping his best arms in reserve for when they're going to be more useful. And on the flip side of that, when an opportunity arose to, to get into the game, he was aggressive and took Willie Adamas out of a game for the first time this postseason. Pinch hit Mike Brasso, and they came within, you know, this game wasn't that close, but it was uh, a pretty incredible play um, from Victor Gonzalez away from becoming close in that seventh inning when the Rays started to mount a comeback. Do you trust Nick Anderson right now? I don't like I don't know. I I have a hard time putting a my uh putting a finger on on Nick Anderson for two reasons. One like he came out of nowhere last year and he's been incredible all season. So obviously he is one of the the best relievers in baseball if we're going to make that that kind of of judgment, but his arrival was so sudden that I almost didn't trust and I'm having a hard time like intuitively getting over that. But also like, I don't really like watching him that much. I think he's kind of a boring pitcher. Uh, and I think that's sort of coloring whatever evaluation I have. I, I don't know. I, I don't really see any reason not to, you know, apart from the, the Correa home run, he's, he's pitched pretty well. And if you want to look at, at him versus Diego Castillo, who I think is the other uh, really good relief arm in the the Rays bullpen and is one of 
maybe my favorite reliever in all of baseball to watch. Uh, you know, he had he had a tough outing in the ALCS too. So I don't know. What's your your reason for for not trusting? Nick well, Anderson? the reason I ask is I think there are two overlapping uh, impulses I have in basically every postseason. First is I think that it's. I, I think that a reliever goes from trusted to untrustworthy in the postseason really quickly. Like all it takes is one bad inning and you kind of lose your intrinsic trust in somebody. And number two is how quickly you can go from having a really deep bullpen to a really shallow bullpen. Like if the Rays entered this postseason and particularly after the Yankees series with three arms, you really trust Castillo Fairbanks and Anderson who are the three relievers they used in game five against the Yankees going from three to two just strikes me as a huge difference in terms of the balance of innings, the length you can get out of them when they're going multiple innings at a time. And Anderson was bad against the Astros. He pitched three times. He allowed runs in all three of them that coming after he allowed the home run to uh, Aaron judge in game five of the ALDS. And I think most concerningly, Anderson didn't strike out a batter in any of those games against Houston. Anderson is a guy who was probably the best reliever in baseball between his trade from uh, Miami in the middle of the 2019 season to Tampa in 2020. And just looking at that strikeout rate, like he struck out 14 batters per nine innings in the regular season this year. So to go three consecutive games without a strikeout Maybe that's a fluke because the Astros don't strike out much. Because but they know I think, what pitch is coming. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, your thing. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, even this year, the Astros had the lowest strikeout rate in the majors, I think. But it that's kind of the overarching lingering question for me here is, I think if Tampa's going to win the series, they need their bullpen to exert its advantage. And I think they definitely can do that. But if Anderson is compromised, then that kind of blows a hole in the biggest advantage they have. Yeah, I saw RJ Anderson and, you know, Saris talking about this on Twitter that Anderson hasn't struck out any of the last 23 batters he's faced, and he has only gotten two whiffs on his fastball all postseason. And I think he's lost a little bit of velocity there. So I agree. That is concerning. He was pretty effective before the ALCS, but when you see someone like that who is usually so dominant and so unhittable, become a pitch to contact guy all of a sudden. That's a little scary, but who knows? Maybe a a few off days will help. And I think that's the thing is that we're used to now no off days, right? We've all been talking about that so much through the first three rounds of the playoffs. There are off days in this World Series. This is sort of a a normal World Series schedule-wise, and yet there are still 28-man rosters. And the Dodgers are carrying 15 pitchers, right? Which is pretty incredible. So I think that affects how the managers use these guys. You know, that might be why you saw Roberts have what was for him a quick hook for Kershaw. One, I think, you know, the Dodgers scored a couple more runs in the sixth and suddenly it was eight to one. And so there didn't seem to be a whole lot of reason to leave him in there. But also you have Dylan Floro and you have Joe Kelly. And, you know, what are you carrying these guys for if not to use them in what was an eight one game at that point? So I think there are more arms and and more innings to go around than we've become accustomed to over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I've. The counterpoint of what I'd say on Anderson is even if he pitches tonight, he'll be going on three days rest. And he hasn't done that uh, since uh, game two of the 
the ALDS when he threw two innings and struck out four. So I wonder if, if that is just sort of a, a fatigue thing and having that time off is going to do him good. I mean, the other reason that you carry 15 pitchers is to do what the Rays did last night is to try to offload as much of that, uh, that workload, uh, from your, your best relievers to some of those second tier guys. So you can just sort of trust to, to soak up innings. Um, not that I'm positive that Dave Roberts knows who his best guys are at this point, but because I, you know, I would have thought that that Gonzalez would have been, um, would have been on that short list, and here he is coming into what was at the time what like a six run game. So, you know, it was he got the most important out of the of the game, you know, the series so far. So, uh, through 14 pitches, so I don't know, he'll having these off days. I think it's going to allow both of these managers to particularly um, given how how many innings we expect a bullpen to throw. Uh, that's going to be going to be big. One thing that that I want to point out for for game two is the Dodgers being such. I think Ben said that glass now is the, the most exploitable pitcher in terms of of the Dodgers patience and and uh, good strike zone judgment. I think Snell is probably the guy I choose to. Um, cause I think he's got better command than glass now, but he nibbles like if he's, when he gets himself into trouble, like he's, he's fully capable of putting up one of those, like no runs, but, but five walks and 115 pitches over, over five innings starts. And I would be, frankly, I'd be a little bit surprised if we didn't see something like that in game two. Um, I, I would still give the raise the starting pitching edge just because Gonsolin just hasn't really shown it so far this postseason, but uh, Snell is a guy that even though he's left-handed and, and would theoretically match up better against guys like Seager and Bellinger, um, he worries me a little bit against this lineup. Then again, Gonsolin has not looked good in any of his postseason games so far, even though he was incredible in the regular season this year. It's kind of interesting, I think, because both teams needed to go seven games in the championship series some of their better starters have been pushed back later in the series. As Ben points out, because there are off days, it doesn't matter as much as it would have a round ago. Like uh, game three, will probably pit Charlie Morton against either Urias or Walker Bueller. And those guys can all go game seven full rest. So it doesn't matter as much, but it's interesting to see sort of the lower tier pitching matchup this early in the series when guys like Morton and Bueller haven't pitched yet. We've also seen both of these uh uh both of these teams have have shoved have have put like maybe one or two older more established starters in the rotation no matter what but have been comfortable using other pitchers either in a like a medium relief role or as a starter or as an opener you know we saw Glass now do that short rest start in the the ALDS. Rios has played several different roles. Dustin May has played several different roles. Yarbrough has played sev- several different roles. And I think that's going to be the difference in in which of those guys can soak up the most innings and which ones pitch well. So you know, I'm interested. Gee, it's game two of the World Series. I'm interested to see what happens, but it's it's <laughs> like, it's obvious because it's true. Um, so I guess I'll ask you this, uh, Ben, you wrote off the Houston Astros when they got down three, nothing in the ALCS and came very close. Completely to- correctly. Of course. <laughs> yeah. No sweat. Are you- so that's going to put you off of making predictions for, <laughs> for good, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm certainly not writing off the Rays if that's what you're asking. Okay. I would uh, I would expect this to be a lengthy series. I mean, who knows? You know, maybe the Dodgers will just uh, steamroll them. It wouldn't be shocking, but. Coming into it, I, I would have expected it to be, you know, probably something that would go six. Just, I mean, it's, uh, I think, a fairly even matchup. I think the Dodgers do have the better offense, but it's, you know, maybe better than a coin flip for the Dodgers. I think they are the better team, but really, I, I think it's pretty close because these are the two best teams in baseball, probably. And so there's not going to be that great a gap between them, even though the Dodgers are really an all time team. Yeah. And the Rays, certainly don't have the offensive firepower that the Dodgers do, but they're probably not going to keep giving up eight runs a game. Yesterday was only the second time since mid-August that they had allowed eight runs in a game, the other in game one of the the ALDS against the Yankees, and we know that they tamped down on the Yankees' bats after that and hit just enough to win. And I would expect to see a lot more low-scoring games as the series continues, and the Rays are certainly equipped to win four to two, five to three, games like that yeah uh one other thing i want to foreground with right-handed starter on the mound that probably means g-man Choi in the lineup and i think that that the rays having their best hitter in the the lineup is gonna do wonders for them in in game two against against some of these right-handed dodgers pitchers okay we're gonna take a break real quick and we'll come come back with more world series analysis and general tomfoolery right after this So this is uh, going to be part of what could be a uh, a recurring segment titled Zach Cram has a bug up his ass about something. Uh, so I'm going to introduce this uh, by saying that uh, <laughs> Dave Roberts put Joe Kelly into a playoff game and came very close to reaping the whirlwind uh, when the first battery faced Austin Meadows came very close to hitting a, a home run, which Cody Bellinger Pulled back. It looked like it was going to go out. Bellinger made a, a pretty remarkable catch on the warning track. This has been one of several, not just from Bellinger, but Mookie Betts. There have been others throughout the uh, a near home run robbery in which Aaron Judge banged his head on the the padding in the outfield fence. Like this has been a uh, uh, a big big continuing trend in this postseason. And Zach has some thoughts about home run robberies. I just think we have had home run robbery creep, and it bothers me. Because not every catch at the warning track is a home run robbery. Like, I watched that Bellinger replay a dozen times last night, and I'm still not convinced that that ball would have cleared the fence if he hadn't interfered with it. Maybe it would have, but maybe it would have banged off the wall for a double. And I think we have seen several times this postseason uh, announcers and fans and other commentators heap praise on uh, outfielders for home run robbery catches. And I'm not saying that that Bellinger catch last night was not athletic or important or a good catch, but I just think we need to have gradations in how we praise uh, catches in the outfield. Kevin Kiermaier, for instance, had several catches at uh, Petco, right? Petco, where he was, I think, struggling to navigate the warning track and would kind of reach the warning track and then not take any further steps backwards, which meant he would have to leap to make a catch that he probably could have just settled under and it led to a lot of praise and Kevin Kermeyer is an incredible outfielder so let's save the praise for the catches that actually warrant it Cody Bellinger robbed Fernando Tatis of a very important home run in the NLDS that was definitely a home run robbery so 
let's make sure we're we're keeping those special, the Mookie Betts robbery special, because we know those would be home runs, as opposed to like if it's going to be a double, it can still be a great catch, but that doesn't make it a home run robbery. Ben, I know, I, I think last year, two years ago, you wrote about how the home run robbery is maybe the most exciting play in baseball because of how it takes uh, the expected outcome and completely twists it. But you also found that depending on the year, there is only about one home run robbery every 30 to 60 games. So there's not a home run robbery every game, and let's keep them special, is my exhortation to the the commentariat that we reserve different levels of praise for different levels of catch. Yeah, I think I agree with that. And I know you're not denigrating the home run robbery itself as a concept, as a play. You're just if saying anything, we should he's preserve. arguing for the sanctity of right. the, yes. the home run robbery. <laughs> yeah, which <laughs> which is fair, I think. And yes, I, I think it is the most exciting play in baseball. And I think we're living in a golden age of home run robberies. That's why I wrote that article, because that's sort of maybe the silver lining if you think there are just too many home runs in the game today. That might be true, but also it means there are more home run robberies because there are just more balls hit in that little narrow band where you could conceivably rob a home run. And I think we're seeing it in this postseason, you know, maybe by chance, maybe because we have got great outfielders here, or maybe just because they're playing in parks that have these, you know, fences at the right height for you to have home run robberies, which I like a lot. I mean, you know, the most home run robberies happen in Camden Yards because the fences are at the right height. And we're seeing that now. And I think that's a, a plus. And I think I saw Mark Simon of Sports Info Solutions say that there have been as many home run robberies this postseason as there had been in the past five or six. So I think it's something to celebrate. But Zach, you're right. I, I watched many different angles of this Bellinger catch. I saw a bunch of replays and I still don't really think it was a it home was run robbery. going out. I it don't think going, it was. I, I think it was going out. Come <laughs> from, on. From one angle, it looked like it was, but I, I feel like when I saw it from different angles, it, it was not going to go out. It was going to hit some part of the wall. And I think you should also distinguish between the ones where it's really like a, a last minute thing, like you have to time it perfectly. And the ones where you're just standing there waiting for the ball to come down and then you have this to hop. Important. Yeah, yep. I, I think what leads up to the robbery. Yeah, technically it's a robbery either way if your glove gets in the way of a ball that otherwise would go out. But I think how you get to that point, if you're tracking it back and back and back and you have to leap on the move at the precise right second to catch it. That's a real home run robbery that I think of in my mind when I think of home run robberies. If you're just planted under the ball, if it's like a shallow fence or you're playing deep and you're there and you're just waiting for the ball to come to you, that's just not that exciting. You know, it's it's impressive in a way, but not nearly as impressive or as memorable. Yeah, the Gary Matthews Jr. principle. The Gary Matthews. Right. I mean, that's why the Andy Chavez in, in 2006, like the full extension ones are just a, another cut above. And I think Bellinger's on Tatis counts as that the first bets. uh catch from the NLCS counts as that that it's so the more you have to jump I mean I would I would say I I love I agree with you Ben that that all outfield fences should either be very short to facilitate these catches or very tall to um to uh, facilitate weird you know bounces off the wall um but there was a there's one I forget which playoff series this was, but it was Aaron Judge in right field at Minute Maid, where that that fence like comes up to 
to like my chest and Aaron judge is 14 feet tall. And so he like reaches into the crowd and pulls it back and does it completely flat footed. And that's, I think that from the mathematical definition of like, if we're going to do ballistics and, and stuff that counted as robbing a home run, but from an artistic aesthetic perspective, I think that, uh, Bobby's saying it was the 17 ALCS. Uh, that sounds right. But the from an aesthetic artistic perspective, uh, you need full extension. I'm, I'm not saying you need to go up there and like do the Gary Matthews slam dunk uh, uh, contest type of leap, but you need to it you need to get up. And so if you're not getting up, it maybe it's statistically a home run robbery but it, it doesn't resonate the same way. This is maybe a, a convoluted analogy, but what is this podcast for if not convoluted analogies? But the the Bellinger robbery last night, I think I agree with Ben that like the straight on angle made it look like it was going to clear the fence and then they showed yeah. the angles from the sides and it looked like the ball was He was going sinking. back into the left, <laughs> back into yeah. the left, uh, back into the left. The analogy is uh, I watch marathons um, which maybe Why? makes me a crazy person. But uh, <laughs> when there's a marathon and it kind of gets to the end and the, the runners are strung out, they will switch between essentially two different camera angles, the straight on angle and the side angle. And because of how depth perception works and long distance, the straight on angles, it always looks like the second place runner is creeping up behind the first place runner. Oh, they're getting so close. And then they'll switch to the side angle for a moment. And you see there's like 200 meters separating them. And that's kind of how I felt about the Bellinger home run last night is if you looked on it straight ahead, maybe because of how tall Bellinger is, especially when he's jumping, I thought, oh, wow, that's going to be a home run. And that's probably what John Smoltz was looking at when he said that was definitely a home run on the broadcast. And then they showed the side angles, which made it look like, okay, there's actually a lot more distance that the ball needed to travel before it cleared the fence. And that's, I think, when Smoltz switch to the well maybe Statcast will tell us if it'll be a home run angle and Statcast was inconclusive i believe was the i saw that it would have been out in like 20 different parks or something uh, i didn't see specifically whether it was going to clear the fence in in the grill but that's interesting that I, I find that slightly compelling now that you've deputized uh elliot kipchoga into in your argument um I get, that's the first interesting thing that I've ever heard about marathons and sports analysis. I'll have to, I'll have to say that <laughs> you watch cycling. Yeah, it's different. It's <laughs> okay. The, well, the, it's... the specific camera angle thing definitely, definitely happens in cycling too. Uh, so, but it just happens faster and with brighter colors and with, uh, yeah. MLB um, has given us what the base cam this postseason. They should give us a wall cam. Maybe that would be more illuminating than the base cam where, I'm not sure if I've learned anything from those angles thus far. <laughs> uh, one thing that that this has been maybe the analytical question that I've struggled with from watching Kyle Lewis. I, I'm sure I brought this up on the show before is is the only thing that matters about outfield defense, the ability to to reach over the fence and pull back home runs, because I'm not sure if Kyle Lewis is a good outfielder, but I know that because he's very tall, he can make the Cody Bellinger play essentially. And we saw in the NLCS, Christian Pache was dressed in the starting lineup. What's the thing you know about him? It's 70 glove. And uh, he came up short on a couple of those catches. And, uh, you know, because 
He's not that big is the only thing that matters in, in baseball and outfield defense height. I think we're, we might be approaching a, uh, a place where, where that becomes something you scout for. I'm not sure how serious this take is, by the way, I'm just throwing it out there because the only like significant outfield plays that we've seen have been going back uh, against the wall. Well, we've also seen Manny Margot's catch over the sidewall in foul territory, which is maybe the catch of the playoffs so far. And I think I I think this playoffs really has been an incredible defensive showcase, not just in the outfield, but the infield positioning, the the throws home that infielders have made. I think it's been a really crisp postseason and it's been fun to watch. I mentioned before with bets about the kineticism he brings and I am not as big a strikeout to ruining baseball person as I think other people on this podcast. You could say but, me. Yeah, yeah. As, as Mike, but I I admit I do appreciate a well-executed uh pickle play, a well-executed, you know, diving stop. Justin Turner had a really great play last night and it seems like every game we're getting a couple defensive highlights uh from both of these teams left and also the teams that have been eliminated and I think that's something that keeps keeps me engaged in all of these games. Like the Dodgers were going to win last night. Even the Joe Kelly factor was not going to help Tampa back into the game. But people who who kept the game on and stayed watching through the ninth saw Bellinger make this great catch. And I think that's one of the fun aspects about this postseason is you're you're kind of going to get these plays every inning, no matter what the the margin is. And Mookie made that great pivotal shoestring catch coming in in the NLCS too. So he can be brilliant when he's going back on balls and also when he's coming in. Yeah, what the Mar- bringing up the Margot catch reminds me of another favorite uh, genre of play of mine is the the catch at the Fenway bullpen in right field where the outfielder goes head over uh, head over heels over the wall. Like the, I think Jackie Bradley had one of those catches and tor- the most famous is the Tory Hunter near catch in the 2013 playoffs. Uh, yeah, more like more weird walls, more more plays at the wall. I think that, that uh, Ben's statement that it's the most exciting play in baseball is is pretty close to to the truth. Now, I will say that Zach making the slippery slope argument about plays the outfield wall does make me want to bring back Tal's Hill. But oh, certainly, I think your your uh, discussion right now about how all outfield walls should be either really short or really tall has me completely convinced. I would love that. Anything to get more architectural diversity in ballparks is, I think, special from Tal's Hill to obviously the Green Monster to you know the, the tall right field fence uh, in San Francisco. I think anything to differentiate between ballparks and just add weirdness to the outfield is both an aesthetic improvement and also... Uh, a strategic improvement too because every time a new outfielder goes to play left field in Fenway it's does he know how to play balls off the wall yet and I think that kind of thing is fun okay so if you're you're in on this what I'm gonna throw something else by you how about we put every outfield wall in Major League Baseball on like a, a hydraulic system and we measure each outfielder's vertical leap and uh, raise and lower the outfield walls based on how high each outfielder can jump to increase the the chances of that climactic play like occurring at full extension. What do you guys think about this? 
It's like Bill Vex moving fences. All those those were uh, coming in and going out, I think, and also were not legal. But yeah, this might be an issue, uh, I guess, for you know fairness or, or sportsmanship. Would you have to change it every game when the other team comes in? You'd have to make it equal. I change somehow. inning by inning, like inning if, by inning. While yeah, <laughs> while the the pitcher's warming up. You're, uh, uh, <laughs> Having seen how long it takes to open and close roofs. Uh, in we're not stadiums. talking about, uh, yeah, I mean, it takes like 20 minutes to do that, but we're not talking about moving something 400 feet. We're talking about moving it like two or three feet. I just not think even. you know, pace of play problems are not going to get fixed when every third game, the right field wall like gets trapped with the hydraulic system not working. I yeah, think there are that, some logistical limitations here. Okay. The Mets haven't I'll even think about figured those. out the, the home run apple. That thing still gets stuck sometimes. So it yeah, might be. That's the Mets. <laughs> yeah. Like we can't we can't punish everybody else. How many home run robberies are we depriving ourselves of because the Mets can't uh can't figure out hydraulics? I don't even know if that's a hydraulic system. Some some sort of large mechanical system. This is gonna be the next change Rob Manfred proposes. Uh hydraulic walls may be better than some of the other changes he has. Uh, been noodling about Zach that's a great segue because the last thing uh, that I wanted to talk about just briefly is the this actually might be our second instance of Zach Cram has a bug up his ass on this podcast (laughs) is uh, Rob Manfred has floated a trial balloon Uh, he has talked about making the uh, expanded playoffs and the ghost runner on second I know it's not a ghost runner that's what I'm going to call it you guys know what I mean Uh, the expanded playoffs and the 10th inning ghost runner rule to be made permanent uh, Zach, how do you feel about this? I think I have made my feelings on the expanded playoffs quite clear on this podcast already. I think it is hard for me to imagine a a rules change that would more fundamentally undermine aspects of the baseball calendar and the entire calendar. Not just it would change the playoffs, but it would affect the preceding six months of the regular season. It would affect the offseason, it would affect the trade deadline and basically across the board in deleterious ways. Uh, I I really uh, I really dislike it. And I know I have ranted about it before, so I will let someone else talk now. But I understand why he's doing it. It's because it would make more money with TV contracts. But I think it could completely dismantle certain other aspects of the sport. Yeah, and actually, as pleased as I am that we ended up with this matchup between two great teams and as, you know, I think unfortunate as it would have been if, say, the Dodgers had been knocked out despite being a really great team and having a great regular season, I do sort of worry that the fact that we ended up with this extremely predictable matchup between two teams may make it easier for Rob Manfred to push through expanded playoffs because if we had ended up with, you know, Marlins versus Blue Jays or something, I think people would have said, okay, this is too random. You know, maybe it's fun for one year or two, 2020 because everything is off kilter, but we don't want to make this a permanent system. But because we got Dodgers and Rays, it all looks like, okay, it's uh, predictable. If you're a good team, you can make the World Series. And it did happen that way, but I don't think it had to happen that way. And I think when you add an extra round of playoffs, and you know, this year at least you take away home field advantage for a couple of rounds, you're making it more upset-oriented than it already was. And it already was pretty upset-oriented. So 
I'm with Zach completely. And I would guess that if there are permanent expanded playoffs, they probably won't be 16 teams. You know, there'll probably be some middle ground 12 or 14 or whatever it is. But I thought 10 was fine. I don't think anyone was really complaining about 10. 10 seemed perfect. So the fact that we got 16 because of strange circumstances this year and the owners said, hey, more money, more TV games that we can offer the networks, let's make this permanent. And, you know, the players can use this as leverage to get something they want in the next round of CBA negotiations. So I think owners are for it. Players are not really against it although they may hold out in order to extract some concessions. And meanwhile, fans or a lot of fans are very much against it. But I don't think either of the parties who will decide this are really representing the fans' interests here. The Astros almost, they they came one game away from the World Series and they had a losing record this year. I think that's all you need to know about the the strange repercussions that might ensue from an expanded postseason field. It's, I'm I'm almost not, not really worried about that the first round was pretty bad. We had a couple good individual games, but there was very little drama in that, uh, in that first round. The division series was better. That, that raised Yankee series was great, but there were a couple snoozers, but the, like the only thing that really changed was the Astros made a deep run. And you want to talk about things that are not popular among the fans right now. It's a 29 and 31 Astros team coming. Like Zach said, within a, a game of making the world series. So, <sighs> It's just, I don't think 10 was perfect. I think eight was, was where I would stop it. Uh, but uh, with the, the admission that the wild card game is a very, very good TV spectacle. So I can see the appeal of, of that. It's just not necessary. It's going to make almost everything about the game worse. And, you know, having lived through this, this playoff format, I'm glad I saw it. It's more playoff baseball than I needed, which I think is uh, it's going to sound a little sacrilegious, maybe a little jaded. But but a lot of that first round, it's really wasn't necessary. I don't don't think we really got a lot out of it. That's a good point. We don't often get a one versus 16 March Madness style baseball series, but that's what the the Dodgers Brewers and Rays Blue Jays series felt like this year. And that's not to say that an eight seed won't upset a one seed in future seasons. If this is the the structure we have, I think it's actually likely we'd get one of those upsets sooner yeah, rather than later. Like we'll probably get one like every other year, right? Yeah. Just based on, on the numbers. But a lot of the other series won't be as great. And even I think most three zero divisional series sweeps have memorable moments because you have at least some time to kind of build a narrative of the series. Each team gets a home game. And I think you you have to also work into the depth of each uh, rotation in those series. So I think those are at least all memorable to me. Whereas like Rays Blue Jays this year, I probably watched like half an hour total of that series because especially game two, which was the blowout game, it was happening as like five other games were happening and it just wasn't worth checking in on. And it, it seems kind of weird that you're missing a postseason game. It's unfamiliar because usually they're staggered so well. Maybe maybe we'd get used to that, but it is it, it does remove some of that special designation like I was talking about with home run robberies. Yeah, not just uh not just a game, but a series. That that day when we had 
Yeah, I'm with you. I watched maybe half an hour of the first, of the race first round series, and we I was on blog duty for the the day we had eight games, and there was that one. Was it the the Cardinals game that, or no, it was the 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 Braves Reds game that dragged, and so I was sitting at my desk like with five games on at once, trying to like at least have something on a screen where I could see it. And like, I tried that for like 20 minutes and I was tired for three days after that. It's just like, you can't follow it all at once. And I guess we are a class of what in political science you might call capture a captured, uh, electoral group where we're going to watch baseball no matter what. And maybe this appeals to, you know, fans of the Marlins who, might not have stood a chance of making the playoffs anyway, or, or if fans of uh, who want that March Madness style, um, you know, first couple of days of the playoffs. But I just don't see what there is to gain except money in the short term, and I think we're going to pay a price as a sport for it if if this happens in the long term. So I'm trying not to get I'm trying not to get too upset about this uh until it comes closer to happening this this still feels to me like like something that we're talking about and so i'm worried about it i don't like it but i'm trying not to get too worried about it until until this uh gets outside the talking about phase and i guess in comparison to expanded playoffs i I think we're all you know less worked up about the automatic runner rule just uh maybe rob manfred's other attempts to change the game just, uh, I guess, make us put our priorities on the ones that we think are the worst and most damaging. A lot of people, I think, enjoyed the 10th inning automatic runner and, you know, found that it added strategy to the game and added some chaos. And it added I think moves to the game. I don't- it did. Yeah. I mean, I am still sort of philosophically opposed to it. I just, some deep-seated part of me does not like it. I don't like changing the game in that very fundamental way once you get to extra innings. I like extra inning games. I understand why they are maybe player unfriendly or some spectator unfriendly at least, but I would hate to lose the the marathon game entirely. I like having those occasionally, but more than that, I, I think it's just such a, a different game and maybe it's more entertaining and tactical and strategic in some ways, but I think the break from the baseball that you play for the first nine innings, like I I have not missed it this postseason, that's for sure. And we haven't had a whole lot of extra inning games as it has turned out, but I am happy that if we do and when we do, they will be played the old fashioned way. Yeah, I so real quick, there are two things that I that give me sort of a visceral dislike for the the tenth inning ghost runner rule. And this is something that I'm rap I'm uh, acclimating to like the DH where I realize that even if I don't like it, it's not gonna ruin everything. The first thing is it does impact the outcome of games. And uh either this exact rule or one like it, it swung the the World Baseball Classic in 2017 and turned what was a really incredible semifinal into just a complete walkover. And like that's a memory that I can't get out of my head. The other thing is this is an attempt to solve the length of games rule, and I'm making scare quotes uh, for those of you who can't see me on the camera, by completely fundamentally misunderstanding why that's a problem. It's not that the game's last too long it's that there's so much dead time between pitches and between balls and play you can go five minutes within an inning without seeing a base without seeing a fielder try to get a base runner out and that's the problem 
The problem is not that the game length has ballooned from the average game length ballooned from like two hours and 55 minutes to three hours and nine minutes. It's the dead time between innings and between pitches. It's not how much action there is. So like chopping off the back end, which is the tensest, weirdest, most exciting part of the game, isn't actually going to solve that. And if anything, it's going to exacerbate the problem where, where the action drags pitch to pitch and batter to batter. And so it's, it'll be nice to, it's just a very literal facile, I think a way to, to try to address a problem. It just, it shows that you're not, that they don't actually understand what the issue is. And that's frustrating to me. I want to make a, a further request that both Manfred and Jeff Lunau, who uh, spoke this week about how the sign stealing scheme was not his fault and he was scapegoated and everything. I would like them to not necessarily make any more public pronouncements as this series continues, because it's legitimately fun, a matchup between the two best teams in baseball. Either the Rays will win their first World Series ever, or the Dodgers will win their first in 32 years. Kershaw could win his first World Series. I want to enjoy this as it's happening without getting concerned about more existential problems around the sport. Uh, And I just want to continue enjoying the play on the field. I think this podcast has taken a darker turn in the second half and maybe they should just stop talking so we can enjoy bets and Kershaw and G Man Choi. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. That this this podcast is sort of what covering baseball is like in in 2020. That it's like 37 minutes of oh this is cool, this is great, this is interesting, and then 12 minutes of this kind. Con- but these external forces are making it kind of suck and threaten to make it suck even more uh, as we go into the future. So. Uh, Here's hoping that the future is less sucky than we anticipated. I think that that makes this a good time to to end the show. Thank you, Zach. Until next time. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure. Thank you, Bobby Wagner, for producing today's episode. Thanks to Mookie Betts, Tyler Glasnow, and Nick Anderson for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the World Series, and we'll see you next time.